Circuit Cast with your host, Mark Amory. Tenakoto Katoa. Hello, welcome listeners. Welcome to Circuit Cast, another podcast about moving image and the visual arts in Aotearoa and beyond. It's winter 2017, the rain's coming down. We're on the phone from Newtown, Wellington to Auckland to the very fine artist Fiona Amundsen on the occasion of the upcoming Circuit Symposium, The Thickness of Cinema in Christchurch, where Fiona has a new work premiering. Welcome to Circuit Cast, Fiona. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Now, your still a moving image work has largely dealt in the subject of the Japanese involvement in the Second World War or the Asia Pacific Theatre. I think maybe it's called for quite some time now. I, I was kind of interested to start off with but just asking where that interest of yours stems from. I guess for the last sort of five, six years, I've focused really on um, America and Japanese involvement in the Asia-Pacific theatre. And, you know, the, the kind of starting point is linked to a family connection I have to Japan with a particular family. And really just hearing their experiences and sort of understanding you know, that particular viewpoint and how it was so different to what I had grown up learning and understanding. And then it just really also made me think about that this is actually a way to understand, you know, what it means to live in a post-colonial society in the present in terms of the legacies of colonisation and imperialism that are linked to the Asia-Pacific theatre. Right, right. Yeah, but that's, that's quite a commitment, though, to, to the one subject, rather than, you know, a sense of being wanting to be more of a magpie. And I mean, I know you've, you've done other works which have, have looked in some similar areas. I know there was an American propaganda film that you, you uh, based a work around, around um, uh, the, the creation of uh, steel in, in yeah. America for the Second World War. But it's all, all in service of um, this kind of broader overarching interest in, um, you know, how do the legacies of the Asia-Pacific theatre you know, live in the present, even though we can't obviously see them so much. Because I also think it was such a defining moment for the geopolitics that we're living now. In what way? Well, I guess it was very much in terms of Asia and Southeast Asia, it was really the start of the kind of ridding of Asia of uh, Western colonisation. And of course, that obviously has a link to Aotearoa. So that's very much a, a link between that history and the present. But also how that history is narrated, obviously it's very much narrated from an American Anglo position, and the kind of layers and um, layers of racism, again, I think relate to the present and particularly the, the context of living here in, in a colonised country. Oh, well, this is possibly interesting in terms of the work uh, that you're presenting as part of the Circuit Symposium. I know it's called A Living Body. It's one of five works that are being commissioned by Circuit. It's actually called A Body That Lives. Oh, A Body That Lives? Yeah. A Body That Lives, even better. Yeah, yeah. Um, a Body That Lives, yeah. My understanding is that Circuit, or Mercedes Vicente, the curator, looked to uh, commission work based on the theme of, of the symposium, which is very broadly exploring the sort of sensorial experience in, in cinema. I was kind of interested in how you responded to that brief. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, Mercedes... Um, you know, kind of description or writing around, um, you know, thick cinema was just, just so beautifully written. And that idea of embodiment I had already been thinking about, but actually from quite a different um, perspective. Cinema is an, an embodiment? No, well, just um, embodiment, you know, w w what is embodied knowledge, so to speak, which is how I interpreted uh, what she had written. And obviously how video or moving image can enable an, an embodied connection to something that's not literally visible. Yes. 
And I had been reading um, Eve Kosofsky Sedgwick, uh, who writes a lot about the differences between you know, paranoid knowing and reparative knowing. So I was really interested in how, you know, how a moving image work can offer a reparative reading you know, of, in this case, a 72-year history through a sense of embodiment, so you know, an embodied relationship to, in this case, the gentleman that I interviewed. I understand this is a, what, a now 96-year-old or so man who escaped from a Japanese prison of war camp in Australia. Yeah, it's a super interesting history. And I'm actually yet to find an Australian who knows about that history, aside from people who actually live in the area where, where it occurred. But basically in August of 1944, there was this massive breakout of just over 1,000 Japanese prisoners from a POW camp in Kaura, which is in New South Wales. And uh, they were breaking out in order to ritually take their own lives, um, you know, in, in terms of the differences between, um, I guess, a Western concept of what capture means and a Japanese concept. And so um, Mr. Murakami was part of that breakout, but he survived. And the work really explores not so much you know, the historical context of that, but rather the slippage between him literally not being able to remember because he's 96 and also he had malaria when he was picked up in New Guinea and then taken to Australia. Yes. But also his unwillingness to remember um, and the, the kind of decision that he made during the breakout that he didn't want to die. And of course that clouds his ability to remember it as well. So it really kind of plays between this... Um, ambiguity. It seems like a broader interest in your work around the memorial or how we remember or I don't know the the act of remembering. Yeah well I guess I mean I, I've done a lot of work around memorials and particularly in my photographic work but that's shifted really to an interest in memorialising you know so how how does one hold a history like that uh, you know across a 72 year period and then let alone how might that be communicated uh, through an artwork uh, where there is a kind of cultural and time um, divide. Do you think you approach an interview with somebody like that differently than the standard documentary talking heads portrait? I mean, I'm interested in whether you're actually playing with that that quite standard format in a way. I am. I mean, I have a real interest in, in documentary and the document and particularly the differences between, you know, what I would call counter-histories or uh, small stories of humanity, which often... Uh, in direct contrast to sanctioned official, you know, state-driven narratives, which memorials tend to um, perpetuate. Yes. But with all the people I have worked with, you know, they're, they're long relationships that are established over time. So there's lots of letter writing, you know, to, to make contact in the first place. And then there's the meetings that occur, but also there's all the time afterwards in the sense that, you know, Mr Murakami has seen and been a part of the process of how the work has developed out of our discussion when I met him in February. Yes, because I was actually going to ask you that question. I was interested why a man such as him would, would talk to this, you know, this artist bowling up from another country. <laughs> <laughs> I know, it's a, it's a really good question. I don't know, I think it's partly, because I've, I've worked with, you know, a, a lot of people now and, you know, it's, it's an incredible experience having someone tell you that, that kind of story. Mm. And, of course, I'm really interested in the ethics of what happens when you now have that story. And, of course, all these people are old. And in the time that I've been working on, you know, kind of on, this, um, on these ideas and this sort of subject area in history, 
you know, one of the people that I worked with has died, since died, and um, I was really, I was very, very shocked, you know, when he died, and I didn't quite realise how it would impact me in the sense of, I think that's when the ethics really kicks in of, you know, like, what to do with what I've been given, and yeah, and then how that kind of translates into an artwork. Well, does, does that concern you? I mean, the, the work is presumably premiering in Christchurch, a long way away from, you know, the home of Mr Murakami and, and his experience. I mean, the, the qualms for you about the way that your work circulates within the art world or the gallery rather than within his community? Yeah, I mean, both yes and also no in the sense that, you know, Mr Murakami has seen the work and, you know, I have his blessing, if you will, for the work. So that's actually my primary concern. And there's also a trust that's established through the relationship, you know, the relationship that occurs before me meeting him, you know, through letter writing, but also during the meeting and subsequently afterwards as well. And there's a trust in the sense that, I guess how I talk about it is, he trusts me to make an artwork, you know, in relationship to his stories, but that can only occur through our ability to relate to each other. And that's, again, across, you know, obviously different generations, but also language and culture. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, and, I'm, and obviously those are also not material properties that can be seen in the work, which is another thing that interests me, and that's that difference between, you know, in, in terms of back to Eve Kosofsky Sedgwick, between uh, a paranoid knowing, you know, having to have everything laid out, um, you know, critically laid out, and a reparative knowing or a reparative reading, and I'm much, much more interested in the latter. Your, your work's often dealt with, I guess, bringing together some, you know, recent filmmaking and, and, and archival or recutting archival work and bringing in voiceovers, a sort of interest in the archive and how it might exist or be re-looked at. Um, is that part of this work at all or, or, or it's, its wider exhibition context? Yeah, absolutely. It, it sort of has um, two archival aspects to it. So the work starts with a kind of series of relatively rapid cuts taken from American-produced propaganda footage, and it was produced in the Pacific. And um, it was actually produced for a documentary that was made uh, after the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki called The Last Bomb. It was really the sort of propaganda footage to justify uh, American you know, actions in terms of the fire aerial bombing over Japan and, and then, of course, the atomic bombing. So it starts with that footage, and it's, it's incredibly uh, violent. I mean, you see these bodies operating in the service of, you know, what is a very violent history. But it has no sound. And I've also cropped in on the footage. Yeah, you see these bodies uh, working together in the service of violence. And you get a sense that it is in the Pacific. But all kind of specific context is stripped from it. And so that's silent. And then it goes to a black screen. And there's a voiceover, which is it's like this, how I describe it, it's this sort of pompous Australian voiceover that is actually at the memorial site in Cowra. Right. And it, and it gives the kind of context of, um, you know, if you walk up to that site, and it, interestingly it's your body that triggers that um, audio. Um, the audio tells you what you're looking at. Um, yeah, and so you've got this sort of you know, silent image of bodies and then this black screen with this very strong voiceover, which I'm think attunes the audience to, to listening, which is then very much what Murakami demands of you, um, you know, as you watch him. 
I'm interested in we're talking about Australia here in terms of the actual camp. It often feels in New Zealand that we do kind of remove ourselves from this kind of theatre of war in, in our heads, but I'm, I'm just thinking close to where we are here in Featherston where there was a prisoner of war camp and uh, there, w there was a riot and, and a Japanese death. So I'm w wondering whether that's a subject that you looked at or whether you prefer to kind of keep things uh, at, at more of an arm's length from the New Zealand experience. Oh, not, not at all. Uh, that's very much, the Featherston situation is very much something I want to work with. I, I've spent a long time trying to find people connected. Uh, there are no longer any survivors, but trying to find uh, families connected to, to that event. Yeah, and so I, I am working on it. Uh, mm. I'm just not ready to make yes. it yet. <laughs> um, yeah. Finally, you, yeah. you, you moved into Moving Image after, you know, initially getting a very strong reputation in terms of exploring still photography as a format. I'm wondering why you made that move. Well, I sort of did it simultaneously. Of, you know, I mean, I started moving with, uh, sorry, working with Moving Image, but I also simultaneously started working with human beings. Right. And to me, that's a fairly um, obvious connection. I, I wanted the immediacy of literally an image that moves, but also an image that talks which is also with a body that talks and moves. Uh, so that's, that's really my connection with it. And I'm really interested in Barry Barclay's The Listening Camera. I guess in terms of how my work operates in the exhibition, it, it's that relationship between the still image, you know, the still photograph, uh, and the moving image that I'm interested in. Wow, yeah, that's a really, really interesting answer. Thank you for that. <laughs> and thank you for joining us here on, on, on CircuitCast. Oh, you're welcome. You've been listening to CircuitCast here with the help of Crave New Zealand. Thanks for joining us. CircuitCast is brought to you with the assistance of Creative New Zealand with music by Heat Pump. Follow CircuitCast on iTunes. For more information, see circuit.org. Dot NZ.